And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Holy crap, Steve. You know what I figured out? The people want discounts. We have had so many people sign up for the Scholar Program, (laughs) getting that $10 off discount. That's only good until October 31st at 11.59 p.m. Pacific with the coupon code GONAU exclamation point sign up join everyone else it's amazing every day i'm like oh new member new member new member new member this is awesome you know and my email inbox is just filled with new members which is great because you know what the the beauty of new members is is this isn't the coaching the scholar program isn't just us giving you information it's about interaction interaction in the clubhouse interaction in the monthly zoom get-togethers The more interaction we have, the better we are. And guess what? With new members, we bring new insight, new questions, new discussion. So, you know, this is what it's all about. So if you want to be a part of that, in addition to getting all the good resources like the Mike Smith tapes, the Canova, I I don't know what it is, the the chest of Canova's everything. I keep coming. I was like, I just found a new like presentation from 2011 at the USATF National Convention called Pursuing the Podium that I sat in and listened to Canova. Like it's four pages on basically like elite marathon training 101. He goes through his blocks. He goes through workouts. And I was like, oh, I'll just scan that and upload it to the clubhouse real quick because I know almost 400 people who are going to want to consume this. There you go. So if you want to get on, guess what? You better do it now because not only do you get a discount, but I'm just I'm just going to warn you guys. Inflation is coming. We so, haven't rate risen prices in 5 6 7 years. We're behind the curve. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just saying that just might be a hint. It's, you know, we haven't increased prices for years. So prices it off as long as possible. Prices are going up on our um, on our hosting stuff and the site that we use to host everything. Yep. So I'm just yep. I'm just I'm just saying, get in now, not only with the discount, but also before inflation hits. So let's do this. This week we've got an interesting topic: the power of the barbell strategy. Why protecting against the downside will help the upside. So here's here's what I want to do, John, is let's start with what in the world is the barbell strategy for those of us who are not familiar or haven't picked up Nassim Taleb's wonderful book, Anti-Fragile. Well, it's not about lifting weights. So if you <laughs> expect me to go rant on that, um, you're not going to get that right here. If finally, it's the one time you're not going to rant on it. When we're talking about barbells, it's like, no, 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 no weights here. Go ahead. No, not talking about weights, friends. Um, you know, so what the barbell strategy in practice effectively means is we are focused on protecting ourselves or making ourselves more robust or what I call a robustness approach by safeguarding or robusting, bulletproofing, if you will, ourselves from the downside of something rather than exclusively putting all our eggs in a basket and only chasing the upside of something. So in practice, what this really means is something like this. It means we're constantly chasing the minimum effective dosage 
on a wide variety of qualities, right? Um, in training, like 400 or 40 meter max velocity sprints, 200 meter reps at mile pace or uh, 3K pace, um, flux training, uh, max strength work in the gym, plyos, hill sprints, medicine balls. We're not seeking to do what's called the maximum tolerable dosage, the highest that we can get away with before we start to get diminishing returns, which is kind of the mindset of, okay, I'm going to do 140 miles a week of running. I'm going to get the miles in, or I'm going to blast three VO2 max workouts a week, and I'm going to get my VO2 max way up because you need a high VO2 max. So what happens is it's a disproportionate asymmetrical emphasis where we do a lot of work to safeguard and protect against the downside. And we do that in order to be able to chase the upside of something with more robustness. So the way you think about it is, 60% of your work, maybe 70, is aimed towards that robustness approach. And that allows you to then go ahead and chase the other 30, 20, what have you percent for that upside you want. It's very tough because what typically happens, right, is the average person, runner, coach, and I fell for this trap for a long time too, we only chase the upside, right? We go, oh, Aerobic capacity is what I need to um, be fitter and get better race results. So I'm going to go chase increasing aerobic capacity. How do you do that? More miles, more lactate threshold. I'm just going to do a lot of lactate threshold and that's it. But if you're, say, for example, in this example, if your running economy or running technique is poor and then you go out and like just pork on a bunch of miles or a bunch of like semi-fast miles or what have you, and you don't have good recovery, good sleep, good nutrition, you're really stressed out in the rest of part of your life. You may want to go chase that upside and benefit to get from this thing you heard about lactate dynamics training or the you know Ingebrigtsen and Norwegian model, but you're going to quickly get hurt and quickly get in the injury cycle because you didn't safeguard or protect more from the downside, which was you know making sure you're able to bounce back and have good adaptive energy and resources from all this hard and voluminous training. You're able to you know get. Uh, good nutrition in your system so your body could adapt and repair quickly. And we often make that approach. And so again, it's a very, it's an asymmetrical approach with people hate, but it's a really important thing to wrap your head around. Yeah. So thanks for that explanation. And I think it's important in the, the original understanding of this, and this is why it's the barbell is if you picture a barbell, let's say an old school barbell, what you want is on the far, we'll say left side is what John is just talking about there is that foundation where you're, you're, you have these things that essentially you need. They're kind of safe to do. They're protecting against the downside of other things. And then on the far extreme of the other side of the barbell are those those upside things where it's like big bang for your buck, right? And so often what happens is we spend a lot of time chasing those big bang for the buck things, which is important to do. But if you don't have this other side, this is what what Talib's saying is if you don't have that other side, like you're missing out. Yeah, the number one way to increase wealth is to first decrease losses. But people don't do that, right? They don't cut spending. They say, oh, I'm going to make this thing, make all this money. They only think of the inflow. They don't think I got to minimize the outflow. And that's really what the barbell strategy is about. Yes. You know, minimizing it, it, losses. Exactly. It originated in investing. Actually, I was reading something the other day. Um, and 
and it was um there was a there was a audit by i think it was one of the major firms like fidelity or something like that like investment firms mm. and they were looking at who were the best investors in all of their things okay and the people who were the best investors okay and this is just from experts to everybody everyday people the people who invested best guess guess who they were john uh the people who uh had the least losses and less high risk. That is true. And you know how they had the least losses? Because they were dead. So (laughs) people who died, accounts of people who died did best. Why? Because they were stopped chasing gains and they were essentially saying, or they essentially just got stuck where it's like, hey, we're in the market. Like, I'm not going to chase things. I'm just going to hopefully let this accrue. And those accounts perform best. So people who were investors who were either dead or their account was inactive, they forgot their 401k, for example, for years, perform the best. Yeah, set and forget. I love it. Set and forget. Yeah. So so the reason I bring that up is I think that there's a lot that ties to to running here where so often we kind of chase the big workouts, the big dose, the uh, the what's the biggest bang for our buck? How do I maximize this thing? But more often than not, what separates whether we make it over the long haul or not is if we can take that consistent, like as you said, minimal effective dose and maximize those things by essentially saying, okay, what's the next logical step in this process? And if we do that over the long haul, we're going to be like our dead investors. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. the gains will accumulate because we're not doing things to mess things up. Yeah. No, I, you're totally right. Like my good friend and mentor, Stu McMillan, CEO of Altus, you know, I said like 80% of success is knowing what doesn't work and what not to do, which is another way of saying, if you know the downsides you must avoid and then work to avoid them. Then via the negativa, which is uh, another Talib um, coin term, which is the absence or minimizing of the negative, you're automatically much, much closer to the positive, desirable result you seek. <laughs> but we, it's, it's so simple and so true because we live in this world of optimality, right? Where it's like, what's the optimal dose? What's the optimal recovery period? What's the optimal this? And this is like what I call the lab coats thinking, where it's like, we take things out of a very complex, adaptive, organic system. We reduce them. We say, ah, VO2 max. We, that's the thing. And it led us astray, right? For just saying, we're going to just crush VO2 max workouts for however many decades in America and Western distance running. When everyone, you know, who didn't follow that path or knew before that, it was like this sub T threshold balanced approach, as Lydia called it, you know, mixed variability approach was really, you know, a better blend of all these things. And so we got into this concept of chasing this optimality where it's, you know, because people always ask me all the time, when should I lift? Do this, do that. And I'm like, Gotta remember, like distance runners, we are strength training generalists. We actually are in the weight room more for robustness than to get absolute strongest. We want that to help our robustness so we can 
not get injured. We have better contractile property in our fiber that only trans, but if it doesn't translate to making the boat go faster or making the runner faster, so what? And so again, it's just looking at that from this more um, holistic perspective rather than what's often happening is this optimality bias where it's like, I'm, this is the key, the one thing I'm going to optimize that and everything happens, you know, and I call it the optimality bias, the no bumps in the road mindset, right? Your fictional map, that smooth sailing where it's like it, and the road's easy to fall. It's predictable. It's stable. It's safe. But the reality is it's bumpy and you have to like when shit hits the fan, make a decision about what to do, where to keep going, pivot, detour, what have you. And that's what barbell strategy thinking and approach does. Yeah. You know, what it brings to mind to me is like the search for the mythical, magical workout, Yeah, you know, and it's the, the belief that I think the, what you're getting at is it's that search, that chase of like, well, if I do this workout at this amount or at this pace with this much rest, we're gonna like, this is magically going to get us better. And the reality is a, that's just impossible to tell, but B, it just doesn't work. Like what we're after instead is, again, looking at maybe another way to frame this is I think it was I think it was Marius back and it could have been someone else. But I remember I think it was Marius years ago and we had an episode on Marius work in the lactate threshold Norwegian model. So take a listen to that. But, you know, I remember him saying like essentially this is like the bulk of your training should make you kind of, you know, robust and fit enough so that at any point in the year you can say, oh, I need to be really sh- fit and sharp in six weeks. Great. I can. Right. Because you're creating that foundation that is like not unidimensional, but has the ability to essentially say, you know what? I've got the tools, the wide breadth of tools from sprinting to long runs to endurance stuff to everything that if I needed to, I could shift my training instantly and, you know, in a couple of weeks, be pretty sharp for both a mile and a 10K, right? And, and that that is that kind of robustness. And I'm reminded of, you know, back in the day when I coached Natasha Rogers as, you know, during one of her breakthrough years, she was racing like she won the road half marathon champs one one weekend. And then a couple of weekends later, it goes and runs 15.0 for 5K. In the yeah, I remember that shit. Era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and 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 then I think she got fifth or something like that at the 10K at USA's a couple of weeks later, which is, it. you know, and Sarah Hall is another one who was very good at this. I remember, like, her placing very well in a half marathon, running, I think, around 70 minutes pre-Super Shoes, and then going and getting, like, second or third at the U.S. one-mile road racing championships. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm saying everybody needs to do that, but that robustness often is a, what allows you to then take that next step in your specialty domain when you're ready to. Yeah. And that's, that's the hardest part. I think of this is I call it agile thinking, right? Which relies on decision-making in uncertainty rather than ideological, physiological, biomechanical re- reductionist constructs, right? Which are hangovers 
from this industrial age blueprint, formulaic, static, linear, overly mechanical approach to thinking, acting, and training. And it's so tough to not want that recipe and just, um, you know, adhere to it rigidly, like some people do, like saying this training style or this progression or this, this is how we've always done it, right, mentality. But there's a great book um, that I recently just finished reading that was recommended to me by one of the scholars called Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps. And in it, um, the author, she talks about these five different mind traps that through our natural biology, through tribal tribalism and survival and collective social contracts, we are predisposed from a neural uh, chemical disposition to fall into, but don't serve us well in this day and age. And one of them is we're trapped by simple stories. We're trapped by control. We're trapped by our egos. And we want the story to be really, really simple, right? Like a good example is energy system development. For a long time, we had those charts where it's like, all right, here's the dominant energy system for distance running events, 800 and up. And then everyone's like, oh, it's the aerobic system's the most dominant, so we should just train that. Nothing else matters. But unfortunately, the reality is complex systems are full of interdependencies. Um, and as we're learning about lactate and different cycles and all these type of things, what we should be looking at is the interplay between all these things versus the isolative reductionist. This is the most important focus only on that. And that, that kind of industrial age blueprint thinking led to the rise of, say, Daniel's distance formula, where he was like, all right, F it, I'm going to make a lot of money, give you guys charge, you got, everyone will love it. Because it was, I mean, I know exactly how to make a lot of money to, if I gave people that, it gives this false sense of security. It's almost like authoritarianism in politics, right? It's, it's a really simple story. Anyone can grasp it. Oh, just... This is the VO2 max. It correlates to these workout paces. It correlates to this. Just do that and I should be good to go. But it doesn't work. And because it doesn't work, we have to confront that. And it's about understanding that interplay. That's the key. And that's what the robustness or barbell strategies approach is about. So now the key thing, Steve, is like, well, how the F we do this? <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's where the rubber meets the road. And right. Great so, theory, guys. All right. Now what? So, so to me, it's, it's pretty simple. I like to think of it like this. Is what creates robust or anti-fragile athletes that allows us to have optionality? And what I mean by optionality is... is we have directions to go because we've created this breadth that allows for depth. So for me, like if you're a high school coach or a college coach hearing this, well, what, what is this barbell strategy to me? What it means is if you think about what we talked about at the beginning, protecting against the downsides. Well, that to me means fill as many buckets as we can so that we're not going to reach a point where it's like, ah, you know, this kid can't move very well, or this kid can't, doesn't have the speed, or this kid doesn't have X, Y, or Z, because you've at least tried to fill all those buckets. So here's what I mean in practical terms. It means covering your bases where an athlete knows, does everything from know how to sprint, to move efficiently over, you know, in terms of efficiency over the, you know, the long haul in terms of economy to 
having some sort of base of long run or mileage so that they have some robustness in terms of the volume they can potentially handle, not necessarily handle in this moment, but potentially handle down, down the, down, you know, down the line. And same thing with strength is have some sort of strength power, you know, plyo in there so that their ligaments, tendons, and also their nervous system is ready to expand off of that. So when we can create that kind of from, I call it from like pure sprinting to everyday jogging, when you have kind of the bases covered across the board, instead of going narrow and saying, hey, the best thing that gets us fit in the next six weeks is VO2 max training. So we're just going to go hammer that. You're in a better spot. And I'd say also the other thing I'd say is the earlier, the more you want to go on that minimum effective dose. So I was talking with a um, former athlete of mine, Ryan Doner, who's now a coach. And he was like, I was looking back at what we did in high school. And he was like, it was the simplest, like low volume workout, you know, I've ever seen for the the middle stuff that like VO2 must max stuff. He's like, we did like, you know, mile 12, eight, four, and that was it, you know, or like, you know, it was, it was like, it was the simplest stuff. And I'm like, yeah, because you like, it's very easy to burn and like get fit doing that stuff. But if we go, if we went there too quick, too often, like there's no room for growth for you guys. There's no whatever. Like we had, we took the next logical step. And I think that's where we often get greedy and go to the other side of the barbell and say, oh, this is going to give us everything. And we do it with no foundation. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Charlie Francis saying, right? Everything's always in the program. Only the volume changes. And that's really what we're, we're after, right? It's this concept of microdosing. And when we microdose, we're creating a constant exposure to something which creates a degree of robustness. Now, this is where it's like we have to step back away from that uh, optimality approach and mindset and go, good enough. What's good enough? And that's what the minimum effective dosage is about, is what's good enough. So if we're retaining a quality, it's the minimum retentive dosage, which is we know once you've built a quality to kind of re- keep it steady in a steady state, not up, not down, not back, not forth. It doesn't require a lot of work. It doesn't require a lot of work that frequently. You know, maybe about like Lydiard's long run during the intensification or anaerobic interval track period that we talked about right before or what you call the sharpening phase, racing. One long run a week. That was it. Rest of the time, we're just burn and churn intervals on the track, guys. <laughs> but that's the minimum or 10 of doses. That's good enough. And um, when we then think about effective dosage and development dosage and then tolerable dosage, that's what we want to think is like, it's not linear, like twice the medicine doesn't give you twice the benefit. And so as a coach, depending on your athlete population, who you're working with, you have to say, what is good enough in this area? And that's why I harp on the details and little things, right? And so does Steve. It's like, is the sleep good enough? Is the nutrition good enough? Is the hydration good enough? Is the recovery from session to session good enough? is the main determinants of success that will hold you back or your weaknesses. Are those being addressed? And are we improving those concurrently with 
honing your strengths. But a lot of people don't want to have that conversation. A lot of people don't want to think, oh, my nutrition, my sleep, my recovery is really important to my success. They think if I do the work, I, I create the stress, I create the stimuli, I'm going to automatically get all this upside. But as Steve and I know, I mean, as you know, peak performance, you know, the book that made Steve's writing career essentially, right? It's like you have to have that complementary part of rest and rejuvenation. Otherwise, you're you're not going to able be able to fully encapsulate or get the benefit of that upside you chase because you've automatically created an artificial ceiling. It, exactly. It's that artificial ceiling. You know, the other example, maybe to bring this home to listeners is when I was coaching uh, collegiately at Houston, I remember um, working with, with Brian Barraza and his freshman year, we throw him in the 800 and he runs all out 155. Okay. One, 155, like dead even, meaning he was like left in the blocks at the beginning and just like got smoked right and i remember seeing that and thinking you know what well he's already run pretty fast as a freshman i forget what it was but you know his freshman year but we'll say like low 14 minutes for 5k back in the pre-super shoes like very good freshman like has made a huge jump from high school being a 905 or whatever two mile guy to you know, something pretty quick. There's two options here. We could say, you know what? You're gonna, it's the aerobic stuff. Like that's your bread and butter. That's what you need to do. This is, this is what, you know, your future lies, like go down this path. Or we could say, regardless of what happens, 155 isn't going to cut it, even if you're a marathoner. Like there is going to be a roadblock here. And we still developed the aerobic system during this stuff. But I remember we put a heavy emphasis on, dude, you got to be able to run faster. Like you got to have some sort of basic speed in order to succeed at whatever you were going to do. So what happened? Like we improved that basic speed through sprinting, hill sprints, et cetera, all sorts of stuff like that. He ran on four by fours. They weren't pretty at the beginning, but by his senior year, guess what? He ran, I think, 151 high, 152 indoors in his only 800, and then split, I think, 50.1 on the four by four. So he was, and he finally got under four for the mile after doing that stuff. So it's not that he transformed into a speed demon, but but now what happened is like, okay, we have optionality. You don't have to go straight to the marathon or 10K, right? You don't have to eat, you don't have to just go up and up and up and up because like this is your weak point. You now have a baseline of speed where you know what? You can get away with running the steeple or the 5K and have enough speed to compete in this spot. And again, this was a multi-year journey, but I think that's what we're kind of getting at here is the downside there was pretty simple is that he didn't have the speed to compete. So that was going to limit and narrow him. Well, the easy thing would just be like, okay, this is reality. Accept it. Like go pile on mileage and we'll see what happens and go to the marathon. But the, the thing that makes them robust that takes this power or barbell strategy is saying, okay, we're going to minimize this downside as best we can. Oof. Maybe not perfect, 
but we're going to minimize it so that you have more optionality when it comes to your future career. Man, I love that. Like that is a good example. And that's, again, you have to be okay with good enough. Like I talk a lot about reactive writing and writing technique and how we want to utilize the fascial, you know, capacity of the body as well as like the tendon ligaments junction and all these avascular tissues that create this like essentially short stretch effect, right? But at the same time too, I always remind scholars like good enough's good enough. It's just good. It's better than it was before. You don't want to stop training and wait for perfect to happen because a lot of times when we are optimality of a biased or optimality um, kind of set in our way thinking strategy, we go, we got to wait till it's perfect. And then no, just run with it, but know what you're chasing. And that's the thing. You have to know exactly what you're chasing and when and why. And then also too, what are the key determinants or limiting factors of that? So a good example would be nutrition, right? If you're going to go in the weight room and you're going to or run a marathon, nutrition and fueling is really important pre, during, and post. Because when we think about collagen and all that interesting study that's coming out from Dr. Keith Barr and colleagues, et cetera, even Trent Slingworth, like they're showing that the collagen matrix, the ability for the tendons, ligaments, connective tissue, as well as the um, joint capsules, the only way they get nutrition is through load because they're avascular, it's not blood supply to them. So when you go load them, they're getting nourished. But if you don't have the right type of nourishment in the system preloaded in the body, it's just not going to be as good. So, you know, a, a lot of marathoners get like achy knees or ankles or hips. Well, that's actually your joints losing hydration, right? Because you're all the pounding you're doing and all the steps you're taking for hours on end. So we want to get a robustness strategy and safeguard against that. So that's where it's like understanding these causal effects and relationships will then help you run the marathon faster or how Canova harps on fatty acid utilization to save your limited stores of glycogen um, so that you have them later in the race. And so doing all his modulation or flux training in order to incur more uh, contribution earlier on from fatty acids. Yeah. And you know, the, the way I could maybe sum this up and, and what we're trying to do here is zoom out from the very narrow world that we live in right now, which often happens is when you're coaching, you're worried about the next workout, the next race this season, right? And in order to develop athletes or maximize their development, if we get stuck on this season, what's best for this season or this moment is different for what's best for the athlete's development. And, and that, I think, is what we're getting at. And this is, again, no fault to high school coaches, but you often see this as like, guess what? It's easy to get some kid fast by doing crazy stuff. But is that going to set them up best over the next four years? Is that going to engender a love of running where they continue running? I don't know. You ask, you answer that question for yourself and your team. But I'm going to say in a lot of cases, like doing crazy stuff backfires. <laughs> yes. So, so for me, you know, for the listeners, I would say is like take that perspective of not just, you know, of course you got to worry about this season and the workouts coming up and the races coming up, but also have a hand in the other side of that barbell of like thinking, what is going to set this athlete up best for the future? Like yeah, I mean, what will allow them to progress yeah. over the long haul? Yeah. You, I mean, you nailed it, Steve. It's, 
it's so much about bread and butter, vanilla, like not exciting training, but that's just in there incrementally day after day after day. And if that is a staple and cornerstone of your program, it then gives you the robustness and optionality to chase those upsides you want in very small, digestible, um, manageable, infrequent relative to the robust work dosages. And then that upside actually is a lot higher. And, you know, I'll end with this. It's like you hear all the time from elites. Oh, don't get caught in the injury cycle. Don't get caught in the injury cycle. Like it's this magical thing. It's like a whirlpool. Once you get in it, you can't get out of it. And sometimes it's true, right? Because again, you're just, you're in this injury cycle where you're not letting your body heal or you don't haven't pinpointed the root cause of why the injury manifests in the first place. So it's kind of like a wound you're always picking because you're saying, oh, I got to keep running because if I don't stop, if I stop running, I'm going to lose fitness and I can't compete. But we know there's other modalities to enhance energy system development, um, tissue development, robustness, communication, coordination, strength. It's not just running. It's not just aerobic cross training. You can do that in the weight room with kettlebells, medicine balls, etc. As a coach, what we always try to practice is being robust in our thinking and have optionality about what tools to use in our toolbox. But if we only have that hammer or lots of hammers, that's all we can do is hit nails. So again, you know, like for more information on this or for a better understanding, like Anti-Fragile is a great book. It's an annual reread for me. Um, another good book is Agile Periodization. That's another great read, more of the strength and conditioning realm. But it applies all these concepts to what we as coaches actually have to do, which is solve training problems, get athletes ready to race and compete as best they can on race day. Love it. That's what it's all about. So if you're interested, check out those books. If you want to join the scholar program, just a reminder, last chance to get your discount. So Last chance. people the, Giving the people what they want is the discount. Come on. Join us. Yep. Join us. Check it out. <laughs> We promise you're gonna you're gonna find overwhelming amounts of value. That's what the emails I've gotten from many <laughs> <Yes>. of the <laughs> scholars I came. They're like, "What is all this stuff? It's gonna take me years to go through it." I'm like, "That's right." They're like, yeah. "This is great. It's a coaching goldmine." So get on board before inflation hits and the discount goes away. And That's right. Never you know, stop learning. Never stop learning. That is our mantra for the clubhouse and for the scholar program. Never stop learning. All right. Until next time, everybody keep learning, keep coaching, keep listening.